God, you are uh, you are good, and God, you uh, you care uh, you care for us. And Father, we come uh, we come before you, uh, grieved and brokenhearted, Lord, over this uh, the, the shooting in Orlando, and uh, over uh, over this violence uh, towards the gay community. And God, we pray uh, we pray for just your grace and your mercy and your comfort to be with those who. Uh, who are grieving now at the loss of loved ones. God, we pray that uh, that, that fear and, uh, and, and hatred uh, would not win, but that, God, your, your grace, uh, your truth, uh, and your love, God, would bring, uh, would bring the healing and restoration that is needed. God, we, we thank you that uh, though we can look and, and just continue to just see and hear stories of, of just things that just seem, everything seems to be wrong. God, we thank you that you're at work in the midst of this brokenness. And so we pray for the comfort of those grieving. We pray that, uh, God, you would somehow take unspeakable tragedy and bring goodness out of it. God, we know that that is, uh, that is part of your character is demonstrated in your word. And we know that ultimately, God, that's what you've done through your son, Jesus. That though perfectly innocent, he endured incredible injustice and incredible suffering. And God, you worked it for good to restore us to you and to renew the whole world. God, thank you that you're able to do that. And we pray as we turn to your word now, God, that, that you would direct our eyes to your character, you would direct our eyes to your grace, to your goodness, and to your beauty. And that we would really see Jesus in this passage. That we would see him as the one that we need to turn to, the one that we need to humbly receive, and as the one who wants to lead us to you and lead us into your ways. So God, come by your spirit and direct our hearts towards your Son. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to ask you, uh, I want to ask you this question. Two questions. Kind of attached, so maybe one question. I want to ask you this. Why do you do some things and don't do others? You think, I want you to think about your decision-making. Why do you hear certain facts or things that you know are true and then respond to that information with action? And then why do you sometimes hear things that are true and factual and do nothing with that information? One of the starkest pictures of hearing something true and then doing nothing that I've experienced is... Uh, is with a group of friends. I think this was in a home, like a home ec class at school at one point. And we had watched a, uh, one of those food documentaries. We watched a food documentary about fast food, uh, about how McDonald's is, is, uh, is horrible for you. And it's about 90 minutes of that. And afterwards, you know how you finish watching something and you kind of sit in silence for a couple moments, kind of gather your thoughts before you comment, well, I liked it, I didn't like it. So we finished this documentary about McDonald's, about how horrible it is for your body, scientifically, practically, all for the people at work, all, all this stuff. 
And uh, our response after seeing it was, we should go to McDonald's right now. Like our, our response was like, actually, McDonald's sounds like a great idea right now. And, uh, and it was one of those things where it's like, I, I was like, I agree. Like I could really go for, for some fries right now. And we had just spent 90 minutes watching this documentary of what happens when you eat this type of food. And we heard that truth. We heard that information. But we didn't really want to do anything with it. We wanted to just do what we wanted. And I think it's a, it's a good picture of us, right? That we have this strange inconsistency where we will hear certain facts or hear things that we know are true and then do nothing with that information. Or in my case, in my friend's case, do the exact opposite. And while in certain situations it's kind of funny and in certain situations it's just comical, when it comes to God's ways and what God wants for our lives and when it comes to the Bible and God's word, this weird inconsistency of hearing and not doing can be incredibly disastrous for us. Thankfully, in the text that we're, that we're going to look at and see, God is going to lead us out of this posture of hearing and not doing into a posture of hearing and doing. Because as this text is going to show us, a meaningful faith in Jesus has action. A meaningful faith in Jesus has the action of hearing and doing. And James is going to show us this in in three ways. He's going to show us that to have a meaningful faith, you need to humbly receive something from God. Then you need to not be deceived. And then he's going to show us a picture of a meaningless faith and a meaningful faith so we can make sure we don't get duped. So let's look at this text. James 1. We've been in this the the whole summer so far and we'll continue till till mid-August. James 1, 19 through 26. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, so strong words from Jesus' half-brother here. Notice in 19 through 21, James is going to give this call to humbly receive something. But before he does that, look at what he says. He says, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. Sounds like good advice, right? Like just generally speaking, you could just read it. I was like... Seems like a good good thing, right? Seems like a like kind of what you'd find in an article online, like three things you should do if you want, you know, relationships to go well, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. Now, but think about this though. He's writing to whom? He's writing to a group of Christians in the first century 
who are being persecuted for their faith. They're probably angry because their lives are at risk. They're probably angry because people are coming towards them, you know, maybe uh, going to harm them, uh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, ostracizing them socially, right? So, so this is strange advice for people who are going through something so difficult. This is weird. It's weird. It's good advice, but this doesn't seem to fit. Now, now why is he going to give them this advice? The reason he's going to give them this advice is because he wants them to see verse 20. The anger of man, the, the anger of human beings, does not produce the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means our anger, our ways of doing things, does not lead... This isn't righteousness in the sense of God declares us righteous. This is righteousness in the sense of right, good, godly, flourishing living. James is saying anger does not equal the life and the outcomes in your life that God wants for you because he loves you. Anger will not lead you to that destination. And so James is saying, you guys are angry about what's happening in your life? That anger is not going to take you where you want to go. Right? We know this from experience, right? How many of you can look at a relationship, right, in retrospect and say, wow, my anger really just made this relationship fantastic? Like, my tendency to anger with my best friend, has, this has just really uh, taken our friendship to the next level, right? No one ever looks back at their anger, their sarcasm, their resentment, their bitterness, and says, wow, that was actually really helpful in that situation. Like, things got better because I did that, right? None of us would ever say that, right? So we're, we're already experientially uh, buying into what James is teaching here. And here's the connection that James is going to make. He's going to make this connection. He's going to say, hey, all of you, us included, all of my hearers, understand that you being quick to anger, you being quick to speak, you being slow to listen, all of that that happens in your relationships, that all comes from your pride. Here's how we see this. He's making a contrast. Look in 21. He's going to say in 21... Put all this stuff away and receive with meekness the implanted word. We'll explain that in a moment. But he says, receive with meekness, receive with humility. And he's making this contrast. In 20, the anger. And then in 21, humility. He's showing us behind all of our anger is pride. We again know this experientially, right? When you get angry that somebody has interrupted your Saturday with a phone call, or your kids are crying, or your roommate's crying, or your dog is right. When you get angry about your kind of special, royal time being interrupted, do you know what's behind that anger? Pride. Entitlement. This is my time. How dare you impede on it? Right? With calling me, with asking for my help, right? With breaking something in the kitchen, right? Whatever. That's, that is, uh, behind that anger is pride. Why do we get mad when, when uh, traffic is just backed up? It's because we think we're the royal king or queen on our way to receive our crown. And how dare there be others on the road at the same time as us? Do they not understand who I am? Right? Behind that anger is pride. 
Angry people are arrogant people, and the reason they lash out in anger is because they're entitled and they think they know how everything ought to go, and when it doesn't go that way, they're going to correct you, and not in a helpful way, they're going to correct you in an angry way. Or they won't correct you, they'll just be bitter as all get out deep inside their heart. But all of that, James is saying, is pride. That's all pride at work. And he's saying, this anger and this pride is not going to lead to the flourishing life that God wants for you. It's not going to happen. not going to happen in your relationships. not going to happen in your walk with God. None of that. That's why he says in 21, take all that and put it away. This is the language of ripping off dirty clothes, putting them somewhere else, setting them on fire, then setting the thing that you set them on fire in on fire, getting rid of them and turning completely to something else. He's saying, get, get all that pride and get rid of it. The pride that manifests in you being quick to criticize, slow to listen and empathize, quick to jump on people, quick to be angry. Take all of that pride and give it the boot and turn and receive the implanted word with humility. Turn and receive the implanted word with humility. Now, before we can even get to what that means, we need to go back and, and ask ourselves this question. Do we, see, do, do we see ourselves, do you see yourself in any of these descriptions of pride? Has this type of pride set up shop in your life and in your heart? I think the reality is, is none of us can say we're innocent in, any, uh, in, in completeness here, right? The question is really just to what degree is this pride at work in our lives? And what we want to see is we want to see the grace of Jesus get into us so deep that we do become the people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And James says the way to do that is to turn from our pride and in humility receive the implanted word. This, uh, this phrase, implanted word, is, is, is not a normal phrase that we, that we use, but it's a callback to verse 18 where he says the word of truth. It's a callback to, to the good news of Christianity, the gospel. The, the good news that God, instead of judging us and condemning us, he gives us mercy and grace. Instead of saying, you failed in all my ways, which we have, he says, I'm going to extend you mercy. And I'm going to give it to you through my son, Jesus. And he's going to sacrifice himself for you so that you can be in my family now and forever. That's the implanted word James is talking about. God's almost reckless love for us. That he would love us at such cost to himself. James says this. James says, when you receive this word, that pride is going to start to move out of the door. And here's why. Receiving the gospel with humility is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Don't let TV fool you, right? Please do not let TV fool you. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is to come before God and come humbly face to the ground and say, God, I have nothing to offer you. My only hope is your mercy. 
To be a Christian is to say, God, I'm the worst person that I know, but you give the most mercy that I know, and I trust in you. This is the essence of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian says, God, I have not come close to being who you've called me to be, close to loving you, close to loving others, close to obeying. My only hope is the grace that you give in Jesus, and you do give it, so I throw myself upon that mercy. That's why James says, receive this in meekness. Receive this in humility. A Christian is not somebody who says, ah, I've done better. I've achieved more. I'm 50% God's mercy, 50% my awesomeness, 100% loved by God, and you're 0%. See you later. That is not someone who understands the Bible or the gospel or Christianity. That's not even close. So James says, receive the gospel, the implanted word, with humility. It takes radical humility to be a Christian because you have to come clean about yourself. But this is, a, this is good news. This is a good gift. That's why it's called a gospel, which means good news. Because look at the outcome at the end of 21. This implanted word, what Jesus has done, his, his love, his grace through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, it's able to save our souls. What this means is salvation. It's this, it's this reality that, that through receiving uh, the gospel, believing in the work that Jesus has done, throwing ourselves on his mercy and not our work, by trusting in Jesus, what happens is we are restored to God. Presently and eternally, and then God is changing us not from the outside in, but from the inside out. James says, This good news restores you to God and is doing redemptive work in you. Now, notice this phrase it's the implanted word, right? Something that's planted has been what? Well, it's been planted. Sorry, it's a, it's kind of, it's a trick one, right? Something that's planted, right? Or a trick one or a stupid one. Oh, wow, that guy's really smart. Something's planted, it's been planted, right? That's a fake deep, right? Post that on social media. It'll be one of those fake deep statuses, right? Something that is implanted has been planted, right? So this is really interesting because, again, James is writing to people who believe this gospel. He's telling them, this is, listen to this, he's telling them, hey, I know you already did this once. You turned from your pride and threw yourself and your life and all your hope on God's mercy. Keep doing it. Keep turning away from your pride and keep receiving with meekness the implanted word that you've already received. What he's saying is, in essence, continue to depend on Jesus and do it in humility. Continue to depend on the truth of the gospel that says, Jesus is why I am accepted, not my goodness. Continue to depend and turn and think and dance and celebrate over that reality. Water those seeds that have been planted, the seeds of the gospel in your heart. Water them, cultivate them, grow them. Stay there over and over and over again. And then he makes this connection. He's going to show us in 22. He's going to say, but be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves. What he's doing here is he's going to show us the mistake of the deceived. This is how you know you've been duped. He's going to show us that hearing and doing is the proof that we are receiving the implanted word of the gospel. That hearing and doing is showing us that our faith has, has meaning and is deep and is vibrant. 
as opposed to kind of thinking that it is, but really seeing no action behind it. This is why he says, 22, Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a person who looks intently at their natural face in a mirror. They look at themselves, go away, and at once forget what they look like. I like that image. He's showing us, here, here's, the, here's the, the one, two, three step to be deceived, to deceiving yourself. Hear the gospel, hear God's word, and then do nothing. That's what he's saying. If you want to dupe yourself, right, it's one thing to not, to not know. That's okay. It's okay to not know and then try to know. Right? But he's saying if you want to deceive yourself, find out and then don't do anything with it. Hear the gospel, hear God's word, hear the Bible, and then do nothing with it or about it. That's the way to deceive yourself. And he gives this image, this illustration of a mirror. How many of you have mirrors in your home? Everybody. This is, this is one of those trick questions, right? We all have mirrors in our home, right? What's the point of a mirror? See what you look like, see what you look like right? So that you can see what's not right, so that you can fix it. How many of you have done this early in the mornings where you have a meeting, or you have something, you're going to work early, right? And maybe you have a roommate, or a cat, or a kids, or, or you just don't want to turn all the lights on to get that kind of, you know, you know that you first turn the lights on, all floods in your eyes, and you're just like, eh, no? Okay. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. How many of you have ever kind of looked at yourself in the mirror early in the morning without turning all the lights on? Have you ever done that? Yeah, I've done that. Um, and it does not work out well. Because when I do that, I usually do a quick glance in the mirror, like, okay, everything's fine, eye boogers are gone, you know, everything, beard is not totally crooked or compact on one side, everything is okay, let me continue with the day. And then, sometimes what will happen is, like, four hours later, I'll catch a glimpse of myself in a mirror with the lights on, and I'll realize, actually, I uh, should have turned the lights on, because I have something over here on my face, uh, my beard is sideways. Like, I mean, I just realized that I was not all set to go in the way that I thought I was. And the point of a mirror is to expose what is not right, not to shame you, but to help you. So you don't make a fool of yourself. And James is saying, when we come to the mirror that is the gospel, the mirror that is the Bible, it works by showing us the state of our heart, the state of our lives, the state of our soul, not to condemn us, not to shame us, but to help us. So God can comfort us. So God can encourage us. So God can guide us into his grace and his mercy. And he's saying this, that if you look at the mirror of the gospel, if you look at the mirror of God's word and you see what it says and you see what it says about God and you see what it says about you, and then you walk away and do nothing. You're as foolish as a person who looks at themselves in a the mirror and walks away forgetting what they look like. He's not saying we're foolish because we don't know. That, that's, that's, that's not what he's talking about. If you just, like, I have no idea. This is the first time I've ever heard the Bible. That's not saying you're a fool. He's saying if you keep hearing, if you've heard, you know the drill. You know the Bible verses. You know this. But you have done nothing with it. You deceive yourself. Now here's part of what's behind this. Mirrors in the first century, not everybody has them. If you have a mirror in the first century, you're a baller. 
If you have a mirror in first century, you're special. This is a luxury. There, there are big old things too. So if you have this luxurious thing that most people do not have, and then you don't even use it, you're full times too. So that James, that's James' strong word to those of us that say, I'm following Jesus. We have the mirror of the gospel, the mirror of God's word. Do we hear it? Do we read it? Do we absorb it? And then do we do in light of it? Or do we look at it, forget, and then follow our own pride and do our own thing and live according to our own ways? That's the call that James is pointing out to us. Showing us that scripture is a mirror for the soul and to hear and not do is to be deceived. And here's the root of the deception. It's pride. Right? Do you, do you notice the thread that he's building through this passage? It's pride. Again, our friend pride right there. And here's why it's pride that leads us to hear and not do. What person hears a doctor's advice and diagnosis and then doesn't take it? It's a person that thinks they're a know-it-all. The only person who does that is a person that says, hey, I actually know better than the doctor. So I'm going to do my thing, even though they said this thing. I'm not saying doctors know everything, right? A lot of times they actually are kind of guessing, um, right? But they're guessing in, in a very educated way that many of us may not be educated in, but you may be, right? But a person, right? Roll with me here, right? A person who hears what a doctor says and does not heed the doctor's warning, exhortation, help, is a person who fundamentally thinks that they're smarter than the doctor. And so behind the hearing and not doing is pride. So pride is what's happening here. A person who says, I follow Jesus, and then they look at the mirror of God's word, they glance at it, and then they do nothing, that means pride is operating to a significant degree in your life and in your heart. And, and, and hear this, to hear the gospel and hear God's word and to not do anything with it is to be that religious person. That's why in 26, James says the person who, who uh, hears but doesn't bridle their tongue, doesn't restrain their speech, their, their faith is worthless. He's basically using the tongue as a small stand-in, as a synecdoche for the big thing of their faith. If you hear and don't do, if you know a bunch of Bible, you say you follow Jesus, you know the gospel, but there is no action to your faith, he's saying your faith is not worth a dime. He's saying it's, it's absolutely useless, right? And we all know those people, right? They know the Bible backwards and forwards, but their life is full of pride. Their heart is hard as a rock. They're judgmental as all get out. And there's no doing in their faith. That's the picture of a meaningless faith that James wants to lead us away from. Wants us to have nothing to do with it. So the question for us is, if you're following Jesus, do you hear more than you obey? Or are you a hearer and a doer? Right? Do you, do you have more Bible in you than obedience out of you? Do you come to the Bible simply to learn or do you come to learn for humble obedience? Right? These are the types of questions that James is getting at because he's getting at these questions because it's these questions that reveal a meaningful, vibrant 
faith. Right, and notice what James is going to do after this. He's going to say in 25, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is going to show us now a picture of meaningful faith. He's going to show us that it's hearing and doing. It's hearing the gospel and responding. It's hearing God's word and responding. It has hearing and doing attached to it. Now, we all know this from the things that we do. You can do certain things just because you got to. And then there's certain things that we do that we're all about. Am I right? Like there's some things that you just do so you're like, I just got to do this. This is horrible. Like, and then there's other things you do is like, I get to do this and I cannot wait till I do this. And then after it's done, I can't wait till the next time I get to do it again. Right? One of those things that we um, don't like to do is the dishes, right? Man, the dishes. I'm like, I want to advocate for... Um, environment-friendly paper plates. So just get them everywhere. No more dishes. Because environment-friendly paper plates is probably no such thing. You're like, that's the worst idea for the environment. That's why I'm not in charge of uh, any of those things, right? But doing the dishes, right? Isn't it funny how every time you need to do the dishes or they, they stack up in your home, it's like right around that time where you really have some, some hobby or something that you're excited to do. So you got to do the dishes and you're just like, I have to do this and put this here. Or if you don't have dishwasher, you're really like, you're really working at it. But then as soon as you finish... You get to do that thing you really wanted. And if somebody was just watching you from, from the kitchen window, which would be creepy, but follow me for a moment. If someone was just peering in and watching, they're going to look at you and say, man, they look really sad about these dishes. You just load it, put it in, close it, uh, dry wash, you know. You just, it, no joy. But then as soon as you close it up, a smile comes out. They're going to say, look at them now, now they're happy. I'll leave them alone. I'll stop creeping on them. They're happy now. They're good. Everything's great, right? It's the difference between doing. We can do certain things and then we really do things. James is telling us with 25, with verse 25, that we can hear the gospel and respond to it. We can read God's word and do the response to it. Or we can hear it and we can do it with passion. Or we can hear and we can do it with joy. We can hear and we can respond with love and energy and excitement and vigor. Do you know what the difference is between the person who hears God's word and responds with excitement and joy and the person who hears it and "Mm, does something? You know what the difference is? The difference is their understanding of who God is. That's the difference. If you hear and you do, yeah, I know it's probably good. Like, it seems practical. That person's upset that I said that. Um, it's actually the wind. The wind is upset. Um, right? The person who, right? Their understanding of God is just a little bit off. And let me explain it to you this way. Look at what James calls the Bible in verse 25. He calls it the perfect law, and he calls it the law of what? The law of liberty. What's liberty mean? Freedom, right? The statue of? Liberty, right? Freedom. It's freedom. You see what James is doing? He's making a connection for us. He's trying to remind us and show us that behind the gospel, behind God's word, 
is not a God who is throwing out commands willy-nilly just because he wants to make us do things. He's throwing out and showing who he is and commands because he's kind. He wants to lead us into liberty. God wants to lead us into freedom. God wants to lead us into flourishing. God wants to lead us into a life that honors him and is good for us. And in our relationships, we already talked about in 19 how our anger gets us nowhere, but yet we still cling to our anger, don't we? And God is saying, hey, the law of liberty will lead you to me and lead you to flourishing in your life. Won't be easy, but it'll be good, I promise. He's trying to lead us into freedom through his word and through the gospel. Now you might be like, hold on. There's a lot of commands in this book. In fact, the gospel commands us to reject our pride and throw our faith and mercy on Jesus and then to follow him with every single area of our lives. That, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like doing what God says. How is that free? How is it freedom to do what somebody says? That's the opposite of freedom, isn't it? But what if freedom isn't the ability to throw off all constraints? What if freedom is the ability to have the right constraints? What if freedom for you and freedom for me is not no constraints on our lives, but the right restraints on our lives? What do you think about a fish in a tank with her her friend fish? This is going great. Um, Right? So you got a fish in a tank with her friend fish, and she looks at the fish and says, I want to be free. The other fish is like, how are you going to do that? I'm getting out of this water. And there's like, oh my goodness. All right, where's my popcorn? Like, let me see how this works out. And so the fish is like, I'm out, jumps out, flops on the floor. And everyone for a second is like, she's free. She did it. We're next. And then like 30 seconds later, like, wait, she's not flopping anymore. Her eyes are bulging out. Her fins aren't moving. Right? And they're like, the fish. (laughs) She's dead. Threw off the constraint of water in order to be free, and dies. The constraint of water for a fish is not a constraint that strips away freedom, but it's a constraint that gives the fish the freedom to live. So freedom isn't no constraints. Freedom is right constraints. Right? The person who's a really great musician has become a really great musician because they took on the constraint of practice every single day in order to have the freedom later to play any style and any tempo in any way they want because they have the skills because they put on the constraint of discipline. I remember going to the doctor and the doctor telling me, Hey, uh, you need to cut down on the sodium because you have hypertension that runs in your family line. And I remember being like, okay, I've heard this like four times. Now I really need to actually do something about it because this is probably like a real deal. And I realized that like this is going to take away one of my loves in life, which is frozen pizza. So I was like, okay, I am going to have to embrace the constraint of no frozen pizza or less frozen pizza in order to have the freedom of health. I'm going to embrace the constraint of thinking about what I have to eat and not eating certain things in order to have the freedom, by God's grace, to be healthy, to see my boys be old. So freedom is not throwing off all constraints. Freedom is finding the right constraints that actually do lead us 
into life. So the question for us becomes this. Do we see, do we understand that God is good, gracious, and kind and is revealing himself in the gospel and in his word, not to constrain us, but to lead us into freedom? Do you think of God that way? Somebody who's actually devoted to your good in that type of serious way. The psalmist in um, one section of the Bible says this, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Have you ever said that? A person who says that is a person who understands God's character, goodness, and kindness to the point that they know everything God tells me in his word and shows me in the gospel is not to steal joy from me, but to take me to deeper joy. And when we see that it's God's fatherly kindness that is showing us the gospel, that commands us to forgive as Christ has forgiven, that calls us to be generous with our money, that calls us to make disciples, that calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, when we understand it's his fatherly kindness behind all of these things, then we'll begin to become hearers and doers in ways that we haven't been before. 11 verse uh, 25, the, the kind of end clause is, the one who hears and does will be blessed. Um, blessed can be such an empty word, right? We just, sometimes we just don't know what that means. I want you to think of blessed when you hear it here and think of confetti falling from the sky. Like blessed is in congratulated. Blessed is in you just won the championship and you're the MVP. Blessed is in you are in the parade and you're center stage. You got the trophy and everyone is cheering. Blessed you are receiving all applause. Blessed you are completely fulfilled and flourishing and happy. James says the one who hears and does in light of the gospel and God's word is blessed, fulfilled, right? Here's why. Think about it this way. One of the big commands that God gives in the Bible, the one that shows up the most is this. Fear not. Don't fear. Don't fear. Fear not. Why? It's almost always, why? For I'm with you. God doesn't want us to walk around afraid. God doesn't want us to walk around and say, I'm an outsider, I'm an outcast, no one loves me. No, God wants us to understand he loves us. He's with us in Christ. He is for us. Fear not. What happens if you actually begin to hear the command, fear not, for I am with you, and you actually begin to do something in response to it? You actually begin to live in response to it. Well, naturally, you're going to be a little bit less afraid, right? A little bit less afraid, you'll be a little less anxious. And be a little less controlled by everyone's opinion of you. And you're going to start becoming the person that God has called you to be. There's another command that God gives for, for our good, which all of them are. First Peter 5, he says to cast our anxieties on him. Why? For he cares for us. This means bringing your burdens to God by talking to him, praying to him, giving them back to him, saying, God, this is weighing me down. I'm stressed. I have no idea how this is going to work out. This is going on. Help me, help me, help me, right? Laying our burdens on him. Well, what happens when you actually hear and do that? You stop carrying every single burden that's weighing you down and you start to take them off of you and bring them to God. Now, you still got them. But you have a growing understanding that you're not in it by yourself. God's commands lead us 
into this type of blessing. So a meaningful faith has action, hearing and doing. Now, you could hear all this and then think the natural response is, well, I got a lot of stuff I need to do now. But I would say to that, not, not so fast. Not so fast, right? Our lack of doing in light of hearing, our lack of doing is not the symptom, or excuse me, our lack of doing is the symptom, but it's not the cause of, of this problem that we have, right? Th- think about this. There's a lot of things that you will do and expend a lot of energy, and you will do even if 10 people try to tackle you. You will do them. Why? Why are there some things that you will do and put a lot of energy towards it? There's other things that you know are good, and you won't come anywhere near them. Why is that? It's not information. It's not facts. It's just a heart-level motivation. Right? There are days... When I'll wake up really early for something, and there's other days where I'll want to wake up early for something, and I won't. That's all heart-level stuff for me. It's all a matter of what matters to me in the moment. It's all heart-level. So if you hear this and think, well, I need to start doing stuff, that's not going to do it. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to change you. That's working from the outside Instead of from the inside. And and here's how we change. Here's how we become hearers and doers. Is we need to be renewed in our hearts. To desire God and his path to freedom. More than we desire our own ways in our pride. That's the huge contrast in this text. Our ways, our pride. God ways, God's freedom. We need a heart change and a continual heart renewal. To be here rather than to be here. And the way it comes is in verse 21. James says, receive with humility the implanted word of the gospel. James is saying that grace changes people, not just telling them to do things. Grace is what changes a person's heart and leads them into a new way of doing, not just trying to do. So we need to see what Jesus has done in his grace. And when we see that, we become hearers and doers. Because when we see what Jesus has done by his grace, we begin to make him the foundation of our lives by faith. Jesus himself says, whoever abides in me and I in them, it is them that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is basically saying that if you are not abiding in me, then all of these things that God is saying, you're you're not going to be able to to walk in them. You've got to start from the inside out, not the outside in. It starts at the heart. So what is it that Jesus has done? And how does it change our hearts? Here's what Jesus has done. In a a passage that tells us to hear and do, none of us can stand and say, I've heard and done it all. I'm batting 1,000. Or I'm like 50% successful. But Jesus can stand and say, I've heard all God's commands. I've dealt with real temptation as a human. And I've done all that God has called me to in complete perfection. Jesus is the only one who's fulfilled the call to hear and to do perfectly. Not only that, Jesus actually does this. Jesus atones for all of our failed doings. 
that Jesus takes our list of where we have heard and not done, and he rips it to shreds. He atones for it. He casts that record of failure away from us. And you know what he does? He takes his record of perfect hearing and doing, and he puts it upon us like a robe on our shoulders, and it's ours deeply and personally. To the point that through Jesus, God looks at you not as a failure, not as a mistake, not as somebody who just struggles and is aloof and spiritually lethargic and just can't get their stuff together and never wakes up on time to read the Bible and doesn't really love their neighbor and is always angry and resentful and never forgives anybody and is always bitter about their boss. God does not look at you in those ways. Through Jesus, God looks at you and he sees you and he says, that's my son, that's my daughter. They have heard and they've obeyed me perfectly. I'm so pleased with them. This is the essence of the gospel. That Jesus, in all of his perfection, has taken all of our failure upon himself and all of his perfect living and righteousness is now put upon ours, not in a detached way, but in a personal way so that God sees you and he says, you are a perfect hearer and doer. I am so proud to have you in my family. That's what happens to us through the gospel. That our status before God is completely changed. And there's nothing we can do to goof it up. Now, when we start to understand that, we start to say, wow, look what God has done for me. He's flipped my whole status around. I've never really been a doer, but God calls me a doer perfectly. God says I'm righteous, even though if you really know me, I'm not that righteous. God says I'm clean and I don't have any shame and guilt hanging over my head. But if you know my life, I actually do. But God has taken it away from me and he's making me new. Look how much he loves me. And your whole character, your whole picture of God begins to come in line with who he truly is. And now, guess what? Deep in your heart, you actually want to hear and do. Because God has absolutely captured you by his love and his grace through Jesus. So it is receiving in humility the word of the gospel that makes us hearers and doers. That's a picture of a meaningful faith. It says, where I failed, Jesus is forgiven and Jesus is working on me to help me hear and do. He doesn't hold my list of non-doings over me. He gives me grace, and it's that grace that continues to change my heart, to make me desire to hear and do. That's a meaningful faith through the gospel, hearing and doing.